Well, good morning. Oh, hey, John, you left your sermon up here from last week. I've got to remember to preach the one that I came to preach. Anyway, it's great to uh, see you this morning. Um, if you would, would you just uh, pray with me? Father, we ask that now through the power of your Spirit, you would help us to preach. And Father, I pray especially for those that haven't heard the sermons that have gone before, well, for all of us, that you would connect the dots for us. Um, Lord, we all live in a world full of facts, and we connect the dots in different ways. We pray that you would connect the dots through your logos, through your word, um, and that you, maybe Jesus, could preach it this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, in order to fund this program here this morning, we're going to pause for just a moment from our commercial sponsor. So, like, wouldn't it be great uh, to have free will? I mean, to be able to just, like, control matter with just a thought. You actually do move matter, you know, with just a thought. And that matter that you move is called your body. You think a thought and you move the matter that is uh, your body. You just will for your arm to move, and it does. But that free will isn't entirely free will. Because you probably can't start the car with your will, or control the dog, or control your, your parents with just the power of your will. But wouldn't it be great to have free will? But it might not be so great if Darth Vader had free will. I mean, think about it. That was the problem with Vader. His will was just a little too free. And it might not be so great if every four-year-old boy had free will, at least not yet. So, do you believe in free will? People often ask me that very question. And people that believe in free will will often quote Romans 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then they, see, they say, see, that's your choice because we all have free will, and if you choose correctly, it's called faith. And then they often point to two Old Testament texts. Joshua 24, 15, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, says Joshua, which in English is Jesus. As for me and my house, what is his house? We will serve the Lord. And then the other text, Deuteronomy 30, 14, The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Verse 19, therefore, choose life. So, do you believe in free will? Some of you are rolling your eyes. I know you are, at least in your heart. Because you know that the topic is going to give you a headache. And you know that everyone, believers and unbelievers, from Sunday school teachers to physicists, they go round and round and round about this topic. And we go round and round and round, and we can't really even seem to define what it is, although we all seem to assume that it is or it isn't. But I hope uh, that you would engage your, your brain for just a few minutes because I think your assumptions about free will might inform absolutely everything that you do. My experience is that some who say that they do believe in free will are referencing a very good thing. 
And others are referencing a very bad thing. First, the good thing. When some people say that they believe in free will, I think they're saying that God did not create robots, but beings in his image, capable of faith, hope, and love, capable of having a relationship with him. And you see, that's a very wonderful, beautiful, and biblical thing to say. But sometimes folks are saying an unbiblical thing and a very bad thing. They're saying, I am my own savior. For I am the creator of my own faith, hope, and love, so I deserve what I get and all that I have gotten. And I suppose that's why this is popular with Americans, because we have gotten a lot. And we like to tell ourselves that we deserve all that we have gotten. And I suppose it's popular with Christians because it's a sneaky way to say, I deserve heaven and my enemies deserve hell. Why? Well, because my free will is good and their free will is bad. And then some will say, well, one will is no better than another will. That's what makes it free will. But that would mean that free will is just random will. <laughs> That's chaos. In which case, we wouldn't be saved from chaos, but by chaos from the logos. Well, as I was saying, okay, track with me. Some who say that they do believe in free will are referencing a very good thing, and others a very bad thing. Likewise, some who say that they don't believe in free will are referencing a very bad thing, and others a very good thing. First, the good thing. Some who say that they don't believe in free will are saying that absolutely everything is grace. And that would certainly include salvation. And so they can only be thankful, freely thankful for life, their entire life. And that's a very wonderful, beautiful, and biblical thing to say. But sometimes folks are saying an unbiblical thing and a very bad thing. They're saying that they cannot choose. And so nothing is their fault, in which case they have no sin. And so they don't actually need forgiveness. They only need excuses because they're nothing but a victim. As we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, God doesn't, he doesn't blame the way that we blame as if we, have, we could have done something other than what we have, have done. And yet he definitely, God definitely finds fault in everyone because everyone sins and yet follow the blame train and we must conclude that ultimately only one is to blame as if he could have done differently than what he did do, and that's the creator who hardens hearts and consigns all to disobedience, in the words of Paul. And yet, only one is truly a victim. And that's also the creator. Against you and you only have I sinned, writes David. And so, God is the only one without fault, and God is the only true victim of all of us who all have fault. And what is our fault? Well, we don't have faith in God, who is love. And what is faith? People will argue that faith is the work of free will. So do you believe in free will or do you have faith in free will? But if faith is the work of free will, maybe it's free will that's having faith in you. And now we're just begging the question, aren't we? What is free will? Some describe free will as a will that's free from the influence of all other wills. So is this astronaut, see him up there, floating alone and untethered in outer space, free? If free will is a will free of all other wills, well, who could be more free? 
Well, perhaps an astronaut floating alone in space and not only free of other wills now, but free of other wills for all time, that would be an astronaut who freely wills himself into existence like an uncreated creator. I mean, that would be really, really free, right? An uncreated creator, or at least someone who thinks he creates himself and creates all reality around him that is a lunatic. Sometimes people say God sends folks to hell for he won't violate their free will. But maybe hell is a free will that remains entirely unviolated. David Bentley Hart writes this, if a deranged man chooses to cut himself and set himself on fire, you will not be interfering with his freedom by preventing him from doing just that. You see, a, a deranged man isn't saved from hell by his free will, for his own free will is the hell from which he needs to be saved by another will that violates his free will. So maybe every man is a deranged man dreaming that he is his own uncreated creator. And that kind of starts as a nice dream, right? But it ends up as a nightmare because nothing is worse than being utterly alone. So maybe free will is more than just a will that's free from things. Maybe free will is a will that's free to become things. So when's an acorn free? When it's on a shelf or in a jar, safe? Or when it's placed in the ground and dies to itself and begins to transform into a tree? When's a chicken leg free? Remember we talked about this. When's a chicken leg free? When it declares independence from the chicken? I'm free or when it's attached to the chicken and running around the yard when is a little child free when the little child is free from their parents like an orphan or when the little child is in control of his or her parents like a spoiled brat or when that child submits to his or her parents and is free to become an adult and join the dance. Free will is a will that's not only free from something, but it's free to something. And isn't that something, the ability to choose the good and do the good and become the good? It is to will what you want and then to want what you have willed. But little children often will what they want and then don't want what they will because they don't know what they want. In other words, they don't know the good. Maybe I will what I want and then don't what I want what I will because I don't know the good. And so I end up in bondage to the bad, my own will. In which case, I'm not saved by my free will, but damned by my free will, that is no longer free because it has become its own prison, which is bad, starts as a dream, turns into a nightmare in which Peter is imprisoned. That was Adam's problem in the garden. He had free will if free will is a random will. He could just choose things like a dog chooses a biscuit or a bone, whatever. He had free will if free will is a random will. He could choose this or that, but he couldn't choose the good. Why? Because he didn't know what it was. And so he chose the bad and gained knowledge of the good, which he could no longer choose because he had just destroyed the good and made himself a slave to the bad, his own free will, uh, that had become a bad will, a body of sin and death, according to Paul. And you see, all of that makes you a bit dizzy, right? Are you just a little, whew, right now? But I think we could all agree, okay, see if you could agree with this, that a truly free will is a will that's free from bondage to any other will, 
And it's a will that's free to will what it wants and want what it wills. If you think about it, it seems there could only be one will that's a truly free will. By that I mean a will that's subservient to no other will. But what if that one will freely willed what none of us ever seems to will? What if that one will wanted to be subservient to all other wills? What if that one will wanted to be last of all, least of all, and servant, slave of all? What if that one will wanted to sacrifice for all? Not as a law, because it had to, but as a, as a life, because it wanted to. What if that will wanted to love and be loved? That's a thought. Well, like I was saying, it seems that there could only be one free will, and yet that will wouldn't be free if it was utterly alone and so unable to love like the devil. It would seem that there could only be one free will and that will utterly alone and not free unless, unless that one free will freely willed to constantly give itself away. That's one free will that freely wills to be like a, a symphony of wills in which case, each will freely wills to sacrifice for every other will. You know, like instruments in a symphony, all playing one song. Or dancers in a dance, all dancing to one tune. Or members in a body, all living one life. Or persons in a trinity, three persons and one substance. Not a law, but a life, and an eternal life. Well, this is important. You need to hear this. The Bible talks a whole lot about freedom. And yet, I don't think it ever mentions free will as such. And yet, the Bible must refer to the thing that we're trying so hard to describe. And you see, I think it does over and over and over and over again. Free will is love. And love is God. And God is making you like himself. So maybe it's a silly question. Do you believe, do you have faith in free will? Maybe a better question would be, do you believe, do you have faith in love? Or maybe an even better question might be, does love believe or have faith? Does love believe in you? Or even a better question, does love have faith in you, for you, with you, and through you? Does love have faith in love within you because see it takes faith to lose yourself and find yourself in the dance the dance called life eternal life okay so our text romans 10 verses uh, 1 through 4 we preached on this part last time brothers my heart's desire eudokia what i want and my prayer to god for them israel my church is that they may be saved saved from what the angel said to uh, joseph Call him Jesus, Yahweh is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. What's that? Well, that's bad choices. That's bad will that we think is free will with which we all construct a body of sin and death, a vessel of wrath. This is my hope for them, my, my good will for them, that they may be saved, writes Paul. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to epigenosis, proper knowledge or recognition. For being ignorant, agnostic, of the righteousness of God, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the perfection, the completion, the fulfillment, the end of the law for righteousness in, literally, all the believing. Okay, Paul, so what is the righteousness of God? This is the righteousness of God. Remember what we've learned in Romans? The man on the tree is the righteousness of God. The faith of God, which can also be translated the faithfulness of God, 
He's the goodwill of God. He's the life of God. He's the judgment of God. And he is Israel's helper, her husband. Trying to establish her own righteousness, Israel took the life of the righteousness of God on the tree. But when Israel submits to the righteousness of God on the tree, she'll bear fruit, fruit of righteousness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faith, self-control. At the base of the tree are consumers. They comprise the harlot. And at the base of the tree are worshipers. They comprise the bride. And on the tree is fruit. And in the fruit is promised seed. That seed is imperishable, according to Scripture. And it is so powerful, it will transform every harlot into the bride. On the tree is the helper made fit for Israel. And Adam, which is us. You see, the life of the righteous of God is not only taken by Israel in 33 AD in the garden on Mount Calvary, the life of the righteousness of God is taken by all the children of Adam in the garden sanctuary of every soul every time we sin. That's every time we try to establish our own righteousness. That's every time we try to justify ourselves in the power of the flesh according to the knowledge of good and evil, which is the law, that's every time we take righteousness rather than submit to God's righteousness who is not a dead law but our living Lord who fills us with himself revealing that he is our justification. He makes us right. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is the one hanging on the tree. Righteousness is the free will of God in a bag of dust called a man, the eschatos man. Free will is God, and God is love, and free will in us is faith in love, or the faith of love. So how do we love? By taking knowledge of love, and so using love to make ourselves love? Or is it by surrendering to love? Being known by love? becoming the body and the bride of love. And so, do you believe in love? Or is it love that's doing the believing in you? Do you believe in free will, or is it free will that's freely believing within you? The one hanging on the tree is the righteousness of God, love of God, free will of God, word of God, by whom, through whom, and in whom all things exist and hold together. Next verse. For Moses writes about the righteousness of the law. That would be the most direct translation. Moses writes about the righteousness of the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And as we know, no one did live by them. They all died by them, right? But the righteousness of faith says, and now stop for a moment, because you see what just happened? The righteousness of faith is talking. Like a living, walking, talking righteousness of faith. But the righteousness of faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say, the righteousness of faith? It, it says the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, that we preach, that we talk about. Now, Paul is drunk or insane, or he is saying something that should just turn our world upside down. He claims the righteousness of faith is talking, and yet he's quoting God in Deuteronomy, talking to Israel through Moses. God is talking about ascending into heaven or descending into the abyss or the other side of the sea to get the commandment, which is also 
a word. So Paul is referring to the commandment that is also a word that is Christ himself and the word of faith in him and in all of us. And then God, who is the righteousness of faith, who is also Jesus the Christ, who is also the word of faith, says, look, you don't have to ascend into heaven to get me. But that's what we think, isn't it? And that's what we teach each other. That's what religion teaches us. If only you got more knowledge and you applied it to your life, you could be righteous, impress Jesus, and so be saved. If only you got the workbook, or received you know, the gift of tongues, and went on the retreat, or you understand Peter Hyatt's sermon on Romans chapter 10, well, you could change the wrong into the right and be saved. If only you built, you know, like a tower to heaven, you could conquer righteousness and thereby obtain righteousness and thereby be saved from unrighteousness. But Paul, Moses, the righteousness of faith, God and his word, they all say this, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Because, you know, we think if only... If only I proved, if only I proved the existence of the Christ, man, it would be like everybody would have faith. He would like rise from the dead. Or perhaps if only, you know, I descended into hell. If only I sinned more. Have you ever thought this if you didn't have a great testimony? If only I sinned more, maybe grace would abound more. If only I did something or didn't do something, which is really a sneaky way of doing something, maybe then, you know, God would do something. But God and the righteousness of faith, who is the word, say, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. I am in your heart, says the word. Like behind the curtain, in the inner sanctuary of the temple of your soul. And check this out. Paul is quoting the text that everyone quotes when defending free will. Deuteronomy 30, verse 14, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Verse 19, therefore, choose life. Now, this is the center of the most amazing speech given by Moses in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, at the end of Deuteronomy, right before Moses dies, and Joshua, which is Hebrew for Jesus, leads the Israelites across the Jordan and into the promised land. Well, in chapter 29, verse 2, the start of the speech, Moses tells Israel that this is a new covenant. In addition to the covenant they made at Horeb. In 29.4, two verses later, he tells them that God has not yet given them a heart that can understand. Something's wrong with their heart. Then in 29.15, he says to Israel, and to check this out, the immigrants in their midst. They had a fascination, fascinating immigration policy, if any of you are curious. But he says to Israel and the immigrants in their midst, it is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but get this, with whoever is standing here with us today and with whoever is not here with us today. Do the math. That would include, that would include you. Then Moses reminds them of the blessing and the curse, and that to do the commandments is life, and to not do them is death. Then chapter 30, verse one, he continues saying, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse, in other words, I know you're not gonna do them, you're gonna die. When all these things have come upon you, verse four, then the Lord will gather you. And remember, he's talking to all that are there and all that are not there. He talks as if all of Israel, all of humanity are like one person. And he says, the Lord will gather you singular, verse six, and circumcise your heart, circumcise your heart, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And then our verse, which Paul is quoting, Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14, for this commandment, singular commandment, and Jesus said, I know that the Father's commandment is eternal life, and then he said, I am the life, 
For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who's going to sin into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea, which they pictured as the abyss, that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. So you can do it. So this word, that is the word of faith, that is the commandment, that is the life, that is the righteousness of God, that is God and is Jesus, was in the heart of the Israelites 1,500 years before we wrapped them in swaddling clothes and placed them in a manger. <laughs> wow. Then chapter 30, verse 19, Moses says, therefore, choose life. Verse 20, for Yahweh, the Lord your God, is your life. And then God pulls Joshua and Moses aside in chapter 31, and he informs them that Israel's gonna choose death. <laughs> Why is that? Jesus, the word, the truth, the life, Yahweh, is in their hearts. Moses just said so. And yet God has not yet circumcised their heart. That means God is like imprisoned in their heart. In the words of Paul in Romans 1, the truth is imprisoned in the chains of their own, our own unrighteousness. You see, it's everything that Paul's been te teaching us up to this point in Romans. When we justify ourselves, make right, when we justify, make right ourselves, with ourselves, we create false selves. That is the imprint, the tupas, the form of the good that isn't good. It's not the good, not the substance of the good. It's knowledge of the good filled with the absence of the good. That's what guilt feels like, right? And that's evil the absence of the good. It's the vessel of wrath in desperate need for mercy. It's the body of sin and death, the psyche that we need to lose in order to be found. It's the fig leaves in which Adam and Eve hide. It's the lies that you propagate about you in order to hide the real you. It's the human ego from which each one of us must be saved. It's that thing that we all so often refer to as free will that is actually bad will for we've made it our own will, our only our will. It's my will, damn it! But check this out. Sorry if I get worked out, but check this out. Imprisoned in my bad will is free will, which is actually God's will. It's goodwill, it's the promised seed and who it is that I actually am. I am the manifestation of the free will of God. <laughs> and so my true self must be saved from my false self. In the words of the angel to Joseph, I must be saved from my sins. In the words of Moses, God must circumcise my heart. Look, help me take this mask off. But you'll die. Nothing can stop that now. Just for once, let me look on you with my own eyes. Leave me. 
No. You're coming with me. I'll not leave you here. I've got to save you. You already have. Look. You were right. You were right about me. Tell your sister. You were right. I call that the circumcision of Darth Vader. Now you can make all sorts of bad jokes at this point, but that's the circumcision of Darth Vader. It's the moment that Darth Vader is saved from his own will, that he thought was free will, but in reality was his own deepest prison. He was saved because Luke, the son, believed that the spirit of his father was imprisoned in the abomination that was Darth Vader. I think Jesus is convinced that the spirit of his father is in the abomination that you thought was your old arrogant sinful you, that you thought was you, or is you, and actually, Jesus himself is the spirit of the Father, imprisoned in the arrogant old abomination that is you. I mean, he's the breath of God in human clay. Jesus said, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And he was speaking to those that justify themselves. That self-righteous self is the abomination but the self that surrenders to love, the righteousness of God, like a child to a father or a bride to a groom, is a treasure, eternal treasure in a jar of clay. Colossians 2.11, Paul writes, You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him by God's work, God's work of faith who raised him from the dead. At the cross we die with Jesus and we rise with Jesus, for Jesus actually rises in us like, you know, a seed that grows into a kingdom. Well, Romans 10, verse 8. But what does Scripture say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, have faith in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes, has faith, and is justified, made right. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And, and you see, Paul isn't just talking about one moment in time that then gets you a ticket for eternity. He's talking about every moment in time, waking to eternity. For in every moment of time, the word is in your heart and on your tongue. It's the word of faith we speak, who at the very same time is speaking us. It's the faithfulness of God, the faith of God, the eternal life of God, the free will of God. It's Jesus. And I know we say this stuff, but we don't believe this stuff. At this point, it gets so trippy, I need to tell you a little bit about me, okay? Not that you need to be like me, but I need to tell you a little bit about me in the hope that this might reveal something about you. Now, this is really important. You don't need to have these experiences. In fact, Jesus says it's more blessed, um, it's blessed uh, for those who have not seen. He said that to to Thomas and yet believe. You don't need to, you don't need to have these experiences for this reality to be true. But maybe you've spoken a word and then realized that while you were speaking the word, the word was speaking you. I, a few times I've said in sermons, I've said things that didn't just connect with someone, but it was like, it hit someone like a bullet and I wasn't even aiming. And then I realized that I spoke the word because God had been speaking me and speaking my reality the entire week before, so I'd speak the word even as he was speaking me. I mean, a few times I just went, oh my gosh, I have no other way to explain that. 
Recently, I've shared about praying in tongues, which I used to think is like the lamest of all spiritual gifts. I didn't see a point in it. But recently, I've been praying in tongues for a friend struggling with abuse in her past over the last several years. For when I pray in tongues, she hears Jesus talking to her in English, and then she translates it for, for me. And he says the most amazing things. Once he said to my friend, and this is just part of it, I live and breathe in you and through you. My love is a part of you. I have light to show you and light to show through you. I am with everyone, and it doesn't keep me from being with you. Everyone is my one. That's pretty cool. Once, with my own mouth, he called me an idiot. I told you about that. And my friend saw him smile and then laugh. And that's what my dad used to do. You see, I think he was in my dad, who I love so very much. You see, it's just shocking to me that the word is near me and in my mouth and in my heart, even if I can't comprehend him with my brain. I, I, I didn't have to ascend to heaven to bring him down or dig down into hell to raise him up. I just spoke in love, and it turns out love was speaking through me. But for me, the strangest thing happened a few months ago. Now, I told you part of this, but I didn't tell you all of this. A few months ago, one day, I was having just this terrible day because I'm plagued by these feelings that I'm just never enough and that I always have to pay. And so Susan prayed for me, and when she did, she saw the false me. And then she saw the true me surrender the false me to Jesus. And then she said, Peter, cast that golem into the lake of fire. So I stood up, had a thought, and I said, I cast you into the lake of love. And Susan watched this Mises, the false me, me and Jesus were all baptized in fiery love. That's what I told you a few months ago, but I didn't tell you about the conversation in, that we had in the garage the following day. I don't know, we were driving back from somewhere, we are having this conversation talking about how Mises was destroyed, the me that believes me is salvation, my old man, the one that thinks he always has to pay. And, and Jesus in me, my new man was set free and then rose out of that fiery lake with, with Jesus. And I said something like this. I said, Susan, you know, I, need to, I think I need to walk myself into that lake of fire like every day. And she said, you mean you need to walk yourself into that lake of love every day? Jesus called it the lake of love. And I said, no, I called it the lake of love. You see, Susan has these visions. It's crazy. And... and I have independent verification with my scientific brain that she's seeing stuff that's true. She has these visions, I don't get visions. And she gets words of knowledge, and I just don't get like words of knowledge, that, if you know something about that gift. And I've come to believe that her gifts, they're true, and yet I'm a little jealous of her gifts, and well, I'd like a little credit for myself. And I suspected that she had taken a little of my credit as her own credit. So I said, no, I called it the like of love. I distinctly remembered Susan saying, lake of fire. Then I had a thought, and I said, lake of love. And you see, in my mind, I paid for that thought. It had been 20 years before that I had done a whole lot of serious language work as we preached through the Revelation. I discovered that the adjective theos can be used as substantive ta theon, which can be translated divinity and not only brimstone. And so, lake of fire and brimstone can be translated lake of fire and divinity, or if the chi is epexegetical, lake of fire that is divinity, which brings a brilliant new theological synthesis to the book of the Revelation, but also all of Scripture and all of systematic theology. What I'm saying is, I paid for that thought. I even argued that thought with Dr. Craig Bomberg from Denver Seminary, appointed by the presbytery, examined me for heresy. At first, he didn't agree, but after arguing with me for several weeks, he did agree, although he still didn't like the thought. I had the thought, I fought for the thought, I paid for the thought with my time, my energy, my ordination, and even hundreds of friends. And so I said, no, Susan, I distinctly remember you said lake of fire, and then I thought lake of love, and then I said, lake of love, and then she said, I know. But first, Jesus whispered in your ear. 
I thought you knew that. And I said, seriously? How would I know that? I don't see, I don't see this stuff. I didn't see that. And she said, well, I watched that. I said, lake of fire. Then I watched Jesus whisper in your ear, call it the lake of love. Then you said, I throw my golem, I throw you into the lake of love. I said, really? And she said something like, yes, you idiot. <laughs> really? And now this is the thought that just won't leave me alone and turns my world upside down. What if, just what if, Jesus is whispering in my ear, not just in one or two weird moments of sermon preparation, or weird moments in praying for somebody in tongues, or the weird times when my wife has a vision, but more like all the time. What if Jesus was whispering in my ear as I studied Greek 20 years ago and thought new thoughts I hadn't thought before? What if Jesus is whispering in my ear every time I make a good choice? Every time I trust, you know, every time I have faith when I'm tempted to doubt, every time I hope, every time I love, every time I forgive, every time I choose righteousness and confess unrighteousness. You see, I thought it was my free will, and for that free will, I should then get some credit and not let Susan take the credit. But it wasn't my free will. It was God's free will, giving himself to me. And for that, I should be grateful. So if I'm proud of free will, Aren't I abusing free will? Taking the life of free will? Perhaps even crucifying free will? And even imprisoning free will in the unrighteous prison that is Peter Hyatt's ego? But if I'm grateful for free will, I'm receiving the gift of free will and free will is rising from the dead in me, and I'm proud of him. He's every decision to love within me, which is the revelation of the true me, which is the eternal me. I mean, what if, what if every good decision ever made in any person, every person is the free will of God manifesting in that person? What if every decision of love is actually the work of love, such that anyone who loves is being born of love and known by love? What if any decision to love is the free will, that's the good will of God, and any decision that isn't love is the bad will of chaos and the void, which keeps all of us in bondage? You know, I think if I believed that to be true, and I believe that even believing that is, is a gift, I suspect it would transform the way I relate to God, myself, my neighbor, and all reality. I suspect that all arrogance, shame, pride, all my insecurity, it would like vanish, like a mist. And all that would be left is worship. Which means that I would will what I want and I would want what I will. I wouldn't have to, I would want to. I would freely will an entire new creation in which nothing is wrong and everything is right. Nothing is evil and everything is good. So just what if? <laughs> I mean, what if and how would I know? Well, perhaps I could start by just believing the words of Scripture. And if I did, even that, and especially that, would be the Word of God whispering in my ear in the sanctuary of my soul, it would be faith. Verse 10, for with the heart one has faith and is made right, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes has faith on him, will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all, those calling on him. For everyone who calls on the name of 
the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him, on him, in him, call on him in whom they have not believed? Skipping to verse 17. We'll talk about the rest next time. So, so faith, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And where is the word of Christ? Who is the word of God? Well, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. And in the same manner, he took the cup and said, this is the covenant. Remember, it's a marriage covenant. This is the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, uh, all of you. So you don't have to ascend into heaven to bring it down. You don't have to descend into hell to raise it up. The word is near you. It's in your mouth. And it's in your heart. Remember? He said, do this in remembrance of me, all you members of me, the man who just gave his life to you on the tree. Remember. You know, it turns out that you can only be born, don't know if you knew this, by grace. Did you know that? And you can only be a child by grace. You can only be saved by grace. You can only be sanctified by grace. Turns out that absolutely everything is grace. It's the work of free will. God's free will. So if someone says to you, do you believe in free will, I think you can say, well, yeah, God is free will. In fact, he's freely believing in himself in me right now. How's that for free will? But if by free will you mean my own independent, uncreated will floating in outer space somewhere, well, I got good news. That's an illusion. <laughs> It's just a shadow, just a lie in which you get trapped. So in Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Now that's a word. And it does something. Because <laughs> it's not dead. It's alive. Amen.